Well, it was good to have Dave and Heidi with us last weekend. Um, they are still in Michigan, actually, and enjoying visiting family and friends, uh, but it was a delight to have them with us. Um, it's good as well this weekend to get back into our study of the Gospel of John. So John 6, I assume you are right there. As we're studying John, I want to ask you this question to sort of pull everything back to the big picture. What are we trying to accomplish in our months of studying this gospel together? What are we trying to do? Well, hopefully our goals are the same thing as the goals and purposes of the author of the gospel, the Apostle John. And he has told us what his mission is in writing this account of the life of Jesus and some of the ministry and miracles of Jesus. Here's what he says in John 20, verses 30 and 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Pretty straightforward, pretty clear. The ultimate goal for the Apostle John in writing these words down is so that people for thousands of years would believe. They would read this, it would ring true to them through the work of the Spirit, and their faith would be in Christ. We've seen this exhortation to belief throughout the, the gospel so far. I mean, it's almost in every verse, it seems like at times, but it is certainly in every chapter. If you flip just a couple of pages back to John 3, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Later in that chapter, John 3, 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And so this has been a theme throughout the book so far and will continue to be a theme throughout the book until we get to the very end. And we've gotten to the point where a few weeks ago we started studying the point where Jesus feeds the 5,000. You remember that story? It's the only miracle story that is in all four of the Gospels. But he fed the 5,000 and then later that night he walked across the water of the Sea of Galilee out to his disciples in the middle of the night. And then the next day the crowds in John 6 come looking for him. I mean they've been fed a lot of foods to the point where there's 12 baskets left over. They're excited about this. They want to make him king. And so they come looking for him. They loved the food, the physical food that he gave to them. And Jesus points this out. If you want to flip back to John 6, if you were over in John 3, look at verse 26. Let me remind you of this again. They come after him in verse 26, or in 25, they ask him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answers in verse 26. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. And then Jesus gives this exhortation in verse 27. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. And so this whole chapter, you've got feeding with physical food, and then later we'll have Jesus saying, I am the bread of life. There's a split here between physical food and spiritual food, and this is kind of the theme of the chapter. Don't pursue physical food to the exclusion of spiritual sustenance, of the bread that gives you eternal life. 
And so he exhorts them that way in verse 27. So they ask him, essentially, well, then what does that look like? Look at verse 28. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? They're asking, what does God require then? And here's what Jesus says in verse 29. And this gets back to our theme and the book's theme of belief. Look at verse 29. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Once again, it's about belief. John wrote this whole thing so that you would see Christ and you would believe in him. Your heart would respond in faith and trust in him. He performs all of these signs. Jesus will die on the cross and rise from the dead. And it's all written down so that you could read this and so that I could read this 2,000 years later and believe in Christ. And so that much is clear. But here's the question for this morning. What exactly does it look like to believe? What is faith? Well, in this passage, Jesus is going to equate faith with eating the bread of life. And you're like, well, that's not a whole lot clearer (laughs) because I don't exactly know how I'm supposed to eat the bread of life. What does that look like? In verse 35, if you flip over there, he says, he's the bread that gives eternal life. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Verse 40, he says, those that look on him and believe shall have eternal life. But again, the key question for us this morning is, what does that belief look like? What does it look like in more detail to see the sun, to look on the sun and receive eternal life? So really, our question is, how do we eat the bread of life? Physical sustenance is quite easy to receive. You put it in your mouth, you chew on it, and you swallow it. That's what happens. But it's a little more nebulous for us to understand what it looks like to believe or to eat the bread of life. So we want to talk about that, and Jesus is going to help us with that throughout the rest of this chapter, John 6, 41 to 71. So here's what we're going to see this morning. Three descriptions of the faith necessary to partake of the bread of life. So what we're saying is eating the bread of life is the same thing as faith. You'll see that throughout the text. And we want to describe faith in a little more detail to you this morning as Jesus does that. And the first one of these descriptions is the affirmation that Jesus transforms by God's sovereign work and sovereign will. And that will become a little clearer as we go through the text here. So Jesus has the bread of life statement in verse 35, and that has caused a bit of trouble. Look at verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. So we have the Jews grumbling about Jesus. We'll get to that in a second, but let me set up the rest of the chapter for you. All that you're going to read for the rest of the chapter is essentially an argument or a conversation back and forth between the Jews, the crowds, Jesus, and then some disciples will enter into that later on. But it's all a conversation, and the crowds of people, the Jews, are struggling with this. They're not sure what to make of it. They're not believing. Their eyes are focused on their physical needs and on material life on this earth, 
and they're not truly trusting in Christ. And so Jesus is going to instruct us on what true faith looks like through this discussion with them. So we'll watch their unbelief, we'll see Jesus's responses, and we'll begin to understand better what real and genuine faith looks like. It's against the backdrop of their rejection that we see true faith. Look again, though, at verse 41. I said we'd get back to this. They grumbled about him. Where have you heard that word before in the Bible? Relating to a group of Jewish people. They murmur, right? We've talked at length the first two sermons on John 6 about how this whole passage is connecting back and relating back to the Exodus story in the Old Testament. I mean, Jesus begins, or the whole, this whole story in John 6 begins on the Passover, around the Passover. Jesus uh, presents them with bread that comes from heaven, essentially. Um, the whole thing is providing food in the wilderness for them. They even, the crowds, compare Jesus to Moses, and they ask for a sign that is better or more dramatic than what Moses gave through the Lord to the people in the wilderness. And so then it's amazing here that you see them grumbling. It's the exact same response that the people had in the Exodus story. And what does this response of grumbling indicate? Well, it indicates not faith. Grumbling does not come from a heart of faith, not in the Old Testament and not here. The grumbling that they're exhibiting here comes from a heart that is rejecting what Jesus is saying. They're not into it. They're not buying it. And so they grumble it, grumble about it. Same thing as, as what happened with Israel in the Old Testament. One example, Numbers 14. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Right? This is the point where they're going to go into the promised land and they just can't have the faith to trust the Lord that he's going to protect them and end up in the promised land. The whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt or that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. You can see here their lack of faith, their rebellion against the Lord leads them to make some crazy, crazy potential decisions here. It's a lack of faith in what God has done and in who God is. Their eyes are fixed on their physical comfort. They're like, this would be easier if we could go back to Egypt. We would be protected. We would have food. And so their eyes are fixed on their physical comfort rather than their spiritual needs and the, the promises that God has made to them. They're only thinking on a physical level. And that's the same thing back in John 6 that happens with these people grumbling here. Look at verse 42. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? And you see what they're doing? They're going back to his physical family and they just can't buy into his spiritual origins. Their eyes are firmly fixed on the material and on the physical. They, they won't accept that he came down from heaven. Now, it's, I think it's really easy to be hard on the Jews here, both in, in the Old Testament with Israel 
and then here in the New Testament relating to Jesus. But keep in mind that this sort of rebellion, this instant rejection of the spiritual and of God's word and his promises, that's how we have all been born into this world. That's our basic spiritual condition. Listen to Romans 3. Let me remind you of this. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And so our natural bent coming into this world and living our lives in this world is to reject God and to grumble, to exhibit a heart that is lacking faith, that is is in rebellion against God. We're born spiritually blind, and that means that we can't see the truth of the spiritual realm. We only see the physical. Romans, the book of Romans here that this is quoted from, paints this picture of every person coming into the world stubborn and unwilling to see. Romans chapter 2. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. We come into the world rejecting the knowledge of God and we refuse to listen to his word and we refuse to obey his word. And it's because of that, it's because of the situation the Jews are in here and it's because of our hard and impenitent hearts that we desperately need the transforming work that only God can provide. You and I cannot bring this about on our own because of Romans 3, because of Romans 2, because of the whole book of Romans, basically, and all of human history. We can't bring it about on our own. We can't transform ourselves. And that's why Jesus says what he says in verses 43 and 44. Look there. Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now I want you to notice the last phrase of verse 44. I will raise him up on the last day. We've seen that phrase before, and we're going to see it again later this morning. It's used four times in this passage, and it's describing the end result of our salvation. Physical, bodily resurrection to a glorified body free from sin and eternal life with God on the new earth. That's what this is describing. But in each verse that that phrase is used in this passage, there's a different way to describe salvation that comes before that. The the process, the faith that comes that brings about that salvation. Verse 39 Salvation is a gift from God the Father to the Son. You and I are given from the Father to the Son. Verse 40, you look on the Son and believe in him and receive eternal life, and you're raised up on the last day. Here in verse 44, we only come to Christ because we are drawn irresistibly by the Father. And then later in verse 54, we salvation, belief, faith is described as feeding on the flesh and drinking the blood of Christ, which we'll get to later. The whole point here is that the salvation we receive, the faith 
we exercise feeding on Christ, all the different ways that salvation is described in this passage, all of that only happens in your life and in my life because of God's sovereign work. He has to open your eyes. He has to transform your heart. He calls and he brings to faith. It's something we could never do on our own. This is the glory of the gospel. We're born with hard hearts and we cannot crack the stone. Only God can. But when he does call, when he draws, he, by his grace, radically transforms us from the inside out. Look at verse 45. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. What's Jesus getting at here? Well, this is a quote, believe it or not, from the Old Testament. Isaiah 54 and verse 13. Now, we don't have to go back there and read the whole passage. I'll show you just this verse, but I want to set the context for you. This passage is talking about, it's giving promises of end-time salvation. It's just piling all these promises of restoration and of new life and of the Messiah coming and working and restoring people into relationship with God. It's It's a passage of comfort and restoration for the future in the Messianic kingdom. And at the heart of that restoration is this, that God himself will teach and instruct people in their heart. This is the promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. What's the heart of the covenant? I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. This is the promise of the new covenant. It's the promise that Jesus says happens through his ministry here. This instruction from God in the new covenant is not some mystical line of communication. Look at verse 46. Here's how this instruction comes to us. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. We are taught by God through the one who has seen God and has come from God. Who is that? It's Jesus Christ. This new covenant transformation and instruction that comes from God to our hearts is not some mystical line of communication with God. It happens through the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 47 affirms this again in language that we'll probably recognize. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. And then verse 48, once again, Jesus ends this section by by framing it off with the statement he made in verse 35. I am the bread of life. The calling, the drawing, being taught by God, all of that is another way of saying belief, and it all happens through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, pull back, let's explain or summarize this first description of faith here. Faith is the affirmation In my heart, the recognition that I need God's transforming work. 
that I've been born a sinner who has a hard and impenitent heart, and I cannot break that down on my own. I need his transforming work, and it must come through the new covenant, the promises that God makes to teach and instruct his people and change their hearts, and how do we access that? Through the one whom he has sent, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it happens as he draws us to himself. And the new covenant promises, to get even into more detail here as we go into the next part of this, the next description, the new covenant promises come to us through the broken body and the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is our second description here. This is a part of faith. This is what it looks like to believe. You affirm that Jesus transforms, that you need that transformation by God's sovereign work. You're not up for the task on your own. And secondly, it's a recognition that Jesus provides through his substitutionary work. Faith must include this. Jesus turns the conversation in verse 49 and 50 back to the theme of the whole passage. The contrast between the manna in the wilderness, the physical food, and the spiritual food that he's offering. Look at 49. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This, verse 50, is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. So it's the same contrast. There's spiritual food that sustains to eternal life. There's physical food that you can eat, and you will physically die. Now in verse 51, here's the point where he actually mentions eating of the bread for the first time. So far, he's said he's the bread of life, but now he talks about eating of the bread. Look at verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And then he defines the bread more specifically. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now, Jesus uses the word flesh here intentionally. Where have we heard this word in the Gospel of John before? Well, we heard it in the first chapter in John 1 and verse 14. And it says this, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's talking about the incarnation. Jesus uses this word here to intentionally go back to the first chapter and the way that the incarnation takes place and what the incarnation means. The point is that Jesus has come into the world, has taken up human flesh in order to offer his body, his human flesh, as a sacrifice for us. Hebrews chapter 10. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Jesus takes a human body. He becomes God and man so that he can offer that body as a sacrifice for his people. Notice in verse 51, it's future tense. He's saying, I will give this. It's going to happen in the future. And the bread is what will be offered. Now, of course, the Jews are thinking only on the physical realm again. 
Look at verse 52, and they're struggling with this. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? There probably are different viewpoints. They don't quite understand what Jesus is saying, and there are different factions all arguing about it here, about exactly what he means. They probably didn't think he actually meant, you know, here's a finger, eat it. That's not what they're thinking. They know there's some sort of metaphorical meaning here, but they don't understand it, and they're not, they're not getting it. So they dispute among themselves. Jesus doesn't back down. He only goes further into what he's saying. Look at 53 and 54. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And here's our phrase again, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now Jesus adds this statement about drinking his blood. Here's the thing. Flesh cannot be eaten unless it is broken. Blood cannot be consumed unless a violent death has occurred for that individual. And so here's what Jesus is saying here. He's pointing to his future crucifixion. He's saying that this has to take place for you to have eternal life. It's hard not to think of Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced. His human body was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Notice the end of verse 54. I drew your attention to this a second ago. It's the same language that we saw earlier in the chapter. And here's the point of the, the same language, right? To eat the flesh and drink the blood of Christ is to believe in his substitutionary death. That's what Jesus is saying here. To eat his flesh and drink his blood is to be united with, through faith, to receive the benefits of his substitutionary death. Augustine said, believe and you have eaten. Now let's talk about faith for a second, okay? That's the whole point of this morning, describing faith, and I want to go into a little bit more detail to help you with this. Faith is classically understood as having three main components. Here they are. Knowledge, assent, and commitment. To believe in something, there has to be something to believe in. There has to be knowledge. There has to be content. You have to know something in order to believe in it. You have to have a basic knowledge of a person, an event, or a situation. Content. Beyond knowledge, it's not enough to just have the content in your head. There must be assent to that knowledge. To assent to something is to agree that it is true. 
Finally, faith involves commitment, commitment of the will. And so you know something in your head, you agree that that proposition is true, that it took place, that it happened, and then it's not enough to just know it and agree that it happened. There has to be a movement of the will toward that object. So what that means is there's a desire toward the truth that you agree to. There's an there's a accepting of it, an acknowledgement of it, an excitement about that truth, an identification with that truth. That truth suddenly makes a difference in your life because it's real and because it's there. There's a compulsion in your life to commit your actions, your thinking, all that you are to that reality and live as if that reality was true. That's commitment. And so faith involves all three of those, knowledge, assent, and commitment. I think verse 55 perfectly describes the the compelling nature of the commitment there. Look at how this is phrased, what Jesus says. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Faith in Christ is like the soul recognizing the true food that is offered and saying, I need that. I want that. I have to have that, access to it. And that true food and that true drink is found in the broken body and shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the commitment of the soul to that reality to say, I have to have that. I can't make it without it. It's what I want. It's what I need. And true faith in Christ, that commitment of the soul to the reality of his death for me on the cross brings about Verse 56, this wonderful union. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Verse 57, as the living father sent me and I live because of the father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. You can see that when faith is exercised, when we believe in the death of Christ and accept it and are committed to it, as what we need to atone for our sins, there's this bringing together of our destiny with God's. He is true life. Jesus is true life. And now because we are united with him, we receive true life and we live because of him. We are pulled into the relationships among the triune Godhead. We do not become divine, but we experience the love and the affection and the joy of those relationships because we, through the death of Christ, are united to him. He's the reason behind our reception of life. And it all happens because of his broken body and his shed blood. Look at verse 58. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died, Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. So, summary here. True faith must deal with the substitutionary death of Christ. It is not an appreciation for his teaching. It is that, but it's more than that. It's not just a recognition that he was a smart guy and he said some cool things that are helpful to people. It goes well beyond that. It's not just an acknowledgement that a man named Jesus walked the earth 2,000 years ago and was crucified on the cross. It's a 
personal need and commitment and compulsion toward that reality that takes place in your life. And that's why Jesus describes it as, as feeding on the death that he offers for us. Feeding. It's a deep and intimate connection with his work on the cross. But even some of Jesus' disciples now are struggling with these words. And here's our last description. It's a conviction that Jesus speaks the words of life. This is the last part of faith here. Look at verses 60 and 61. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? This is not the 12. This is a larger group of disciples, followers, who are probably talked about earlier in chapter 2 when they were interested in Jesus' signs and his, his miracles, but weren't exercising true faith. That would be this group of people. And Jesus describes their reaction here as taking offense. It's the idea of having a stumbling block put in front of you. You, you trip over it. it. It trips you up. It messes up what seems to be clear and obvious for you. These words are a stumbling block to them. Why? Because they've been concerned about all sorts of other things. Political deliverance. They want to make him a king. Physical need. They love all the food and they want more of it. That's where their concerns lie. And so they are not going to exercise faith in Jesus when they have these other concerns on their mind. And so Jesus comes along and gives this language of a broken body and shed blood, and it is strange and offensive to them that he would say this is necessary for eternal life. They're obviously not operating in the spiritual realm. Look at verse 62. Jesus says this, Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? How would Jesus ascend to where he was before? What has to take place for him to go back to the Father? Well, he would have to die in order to rise to life and ascend to the Father. So he's saying, what would you think of a crucified Messiah? How would that strike you? Well, it's an absurdity to them. And it's exactly how Paul understood it. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, we see it right here, and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And the point of Paul here in 1 Corinthians is the same point that Jesus makes in verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Continue reading in 64 and 65. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. So what's the key element of faith here? Two, you hear the words. 
They come in through your ears. You hear the words of Jesus. And then the Spirit works in your heart to confirm those words so that you assent to them and that you commit to them. You know them, you assent to them, and you commit your life to those words. And the Father draws you to himself through the Spirit and these words. Faith begins with the word of God. That's what Jesus is saying here. The words that he speaks are spirit and life. You have to hear the words. The word of God is the instrument that God uses to produce faith in us. The talk of drawing, all of this that that people sometimes struggle with in this passage. No one can come unless the Father draws him. How does the Father draw? Through the word of God. The word is read. The word is proclaimed. It is clear. We understand what it is, what it is saying. And then God uses the word to draw people to himself. The problem here with the Jews and with Jesus's disciples is they're not accepting the words of Jesus as true. They're hearing them and they're rejecting them. They want everything on their terms. They reject Jesus's framing of reality. They don't want it. You see this clearly in verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. But I love what happens here. Jesus turns to the 12, verse 67. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, and I I love this. This is one of the most honest raw, real statements in all of Scripture. It's not over-spiritualized. It's Peter being genuine, I think, here. I love what he says. And when you're struggling with your faith, when things are difficult, when sometimes you're doubting, when you're suffering, mimic what Peter says here. I love this. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve, behind their belief, behind their recognition of God's word being true, Jesus says, is my choice and my drawing you by the work of the Spirit. All of it happens together. Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. For he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Listen, here's the bottom line for this this morning. The bottom line is Romans 10. How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And then here's the the bottom line. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Faith begins with the word of God. This is why we're here this morning. This is what we're doing. This is why we value this book. This is why we preach the word. This is why you're here. 
This is why we're studying John together week after week to expose our hearts to the Bible. And as you expose yourself to the words of Jesus and the truth, the reality of his life and his death and his resurrection, you put yourself in a position where the spirit works and draws you to faith in Christ. That's what happens. That's the process. And it's the same process that has been taking place for 2,000 years. And Peter's question is the same one that you and I can repeat as well. To whom shall we go? Right? What else are we going to do? Where else are you going to land this morning? What other philosophies of life are you going to go to? What else makes sense of the universe and of life? How will you live in joy and satisfaction when you're only living for earthly realities? Where else are you going to go? So see your need for transformation of heart through the sovereign work of God. Recognize the offer of forgiveness. It is there through the substitutionary death of Christ. And then listen to his word and accept it as true. And believe in the glorious son and the work that he has done for us. Let's pray. God, we're so thankful for your word this morning. It is life. The words that you speak are spirit and life. And I pray that you would encourage us this morning with this reality. Build up our faith this week. May we expose our hearts consistently to the scriptures, to the Lord Jesus Christ, and to all that you have done. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.